So that brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, and the priests and the commander of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, angry because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and put them in jail until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, this is the first external conflict, true external conflict that we see. In the temple, the captain of the temple had oversight over the temple guard and the whole body of priests. The temple was controlled by the Sadducees. This was their political power base. And they were the ones that controlled it. The Pharisees, they put more emphasis in the law and the community and the teachings of God. Where the Sadducees put more emphasis in the temple and the sacrificial system. The law was freely taught. The temple required money and sacrifices and all this kind of stuff. So it made the Sadducees more powerful. And because the temple was a controversial place and things could break out, the, the Sadducees had a temple guard, Jewish soldiers. And the guard was led by the captain. But there was also the Roman guard. So right, the temple was this large rectangle. And in the temple, the Sadducees would be controlling the sacrifices and the donations and all that kind of stuff. And the priests, the priests and the Sadducees were kind of the same thing. The priests were all pulled for the Sadducees. And then they had their temple guard that were all Jewish. Jewish people who believed, Jewish people who were obedient to the law, that kind of stuff, adhering to the Sadducees. But then right next to that was the Antonio Fortress. The Romans knew that the temple was a hotbed of conflict. And the Romans valued peace more than anything. And not peace, we truly love each other, and we're going to work through things, and we're going to create a loving environment for people to thrive. But peace under the boot of our heel. As in, if you don't do what we like, we will stomp you down so hard that you'll never do it again. And because you don't want to be stomped down hard, you'll just kind of do what we want. And we'll have peace. They were more like peacekeepers than they were peacemakers. They put the Antonium Fortress there because the Jews were always rebelling and doing all these kind of things. And um, go back to my intertestamental history thing if you want to understand how that relationship works. And... But the Romans built the Antonium Fortress just a slightly taller than the temple. Because in the ancient world, the taller something was, the better and the more God-ordained it is. We kind of still have that mentality as the, the world is racing to build the build this building. Um, China's got like a, a, the blueprints and ready to start building a mile tall tower to basically say we're better than you. But Dubai is like, we'll show you. We've got a mile and a half one coming. So there's that kind of mentality. So the Antonio Fortress is there just kind of as a slap in the face of the Jews. We're better than your God, and we're taller than your God's house. And they could empty about a 1,000 soldiers onto the Temple Mount within seconds to deal with any kind of conflict. And there were multiple times they did it. And later when we get to the book of Acts, you're going to see that happen. They're going to pour out um, for Paul and what happens there. And so it's the Temple Guard right now, the Jewish Guard. They're seeing this. And they don't like it. Probably the Sadducees are standing there like, that's not cool. Get them. And the temple guard go to arrest them. And they arrest them and confine them. But despite them being carried and hauled off into prison, people are still coming to Christ. 
thousands of people are accepting it because they don't see the chains. They see the miracles. They see the power of God's word and they see what the spirit is doing and they're coming to Christ. And so Peter and John are in chains, but the gospel is unleashed among the people and the spirit cannot be contained. And so they're arrested. They're not going to prison for any crimes. Up to this point, there has been no anti-preaching Jesus law. There's no command. They have not done anything illegal in any kind of a way. There's no mandate. There's no rule. There's no law that says they cannot preach or talk about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the death and resurrection. This is a holding place for their trial. So think of more like, we don't know if you're guilty or innocent yet, but we're hauling off to jail to confine you until your court, your court hearing. And then your court hearing will determine whether you go to prison or whether you're freed or not. So this is what's happening. So they've been confined until the Sanhedrin can be convened in order to put them on trial and to deal with what's really going on. So that brings us to verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the experts of the law came together in Jerusalem. So that means the Sadducees and the Pharisees are gathering together with all other people and they determined this is what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the political party of the Sadducees were more on the left side of the political spectrum and the Pharisees were more on the right side of the political spectrum and they both convened together in the Sanhedrin. And very rarely do they ever really get along with each other and do they agree on things. In fact, later we're going to see this with Paul when he realizes that things aren't going well for him and he realizes he needs to get out of this and that he's going to be better in the hands of Rome than he is in the Sanhedrin. He basically says, and I believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees who believe in the resurrection like that and the Sadducees don't. So they turn on each other and begin to argue with each other and then they become such chaos that the Roman soldier says, let's get you out of here. And Paul's, Peter, Paul's like, yes, I'm safe now. And you're like, whoa, that's really messed up when you feel safer arrested by the Romans than you do in the hands of the Jews. So he will actually use that division in order to create so much chaos that Rome will step in and protect him. And so we'll see that later. So they're convening together. Now, Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, John of Alexander, and the others were also members of the high priest family. These are the two guys that crucified Jesus. The prefects, or the procurators, they were Roman governors that ruled over Jerusalem. And one of these was Pontius Pilate and a string of multiples. And Rome decided that in order to keep Jews under control, they would sack the high priest every year. They would pick the high priest and then they would sack them so that nobody would get too comfortable in their power position and they would know that they were already precarious so they would do whatever Rome wanted so they wouldn't be sacked before a year. And so Caiaphas comes along and Caiaphas was such in cahoots with the Roman Empire in the way that he thought and acted and believed that Pilate said, wow, we actually have a lot in common and we kind of like the same things and we agree on how to deal with the same things. I'll keep you in power. And so he stayed in power for years. And eventually he kind of retired and then pointed his nephew, or his son-in-law. Uh, he actually pointed a couple of his sons to replace him. But Rome didn't like them and sacked them within months. And so then he appointed his son-in-law, Annas, to take over the power. And he actually did a good job of staying there. So, Ca so Pilate kept him there and some other Roman prefects kept him there. But Caiaphas was still the guy that really truly was the one in power. So think of like the godfather that even though the son kind of takes over the business, 
the Godfather's still kind of in the background a little bit. And every once in a while, Ennis would be kind of like, if things got too bad, like Jesus, he looked at Caiaphas, and Caiaphas would step in. And that's why Caiaphas handles the trial of Jesus. And so he's the one that says, who do you say you are? You say you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, he doesn't say this literally, I'll do you one better, but that's what he's kind of doing. He says, no, oh, no, no. He doesn't actually say I'm the king of Jesus. He says, you will see me coming on the clouds and judging you, Daniel 7. And that's when Caiaphas rips his clothes and says, kill him. So these two guys are now standing over Peter and John and their trial. And I remember what Peter and John were doing that night. They were running away and hiding. And Peter was denying Christ. And so I, I can't imagine what's going through Peter's mind and John's mind. Like, hey, these are the people we were trying to escape that night. And now we're right in front of them. But now they don't care because the gospel is more important than their life. Sorry, is this the same John that writes the book of John? Correct. Correct. So you're going to see a very, very different picture of Peter and John now than that night that Jesus was standing before Caiaphas and Annas. And what has changed? The Holy Spirit. That's it. The Holy Spirit. This is why sometimes we're like, oh, but I can never go to them. And what if they reject me? And I'm so nervous. And what if I don't have the right words? Peter and John, the Holy Spirit, you have the same thing. Don't get me wrong. I know that's easier than said than done. Okay, I have lots of rejection issues. I know that's easier said than done. But it doesn't change the fact that it's still true. It's still true. So they came together. And after making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire, by what power or by what name did you do this? They don't deny the power. Just like they never deny the power with Jesus. What they want to know is where is it coming from? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, replied, rulers of the people and elders, if we were being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, by what means this man was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and man stands before you healthy. We're standing before you because we did something really nice and good. Like, you're putting us on trial because we healed somebody. Does that make sense to you? You crucified Jesus. And that's the name we're doing it in. That's why we're standing on trial before you. This has nothing to do with what we have done. This has everything to do that we have joined a different political power, for lack of a better phrase, than what you want us to be a part of. The reason you killed Jesus is because he threatened your power base. You wanted the Messiah. That was a great idea for about 400 years. But after you rooted your political power and foot into Israel and got really secure and really powerful, when the Messiah showed up, you realized that you would have to obey him and surrender to him as king. And that didn't really go over well with you anymore. And so you killed him to maintain your power. And now he's back because of the resurrection. And that's why you don't like us. Jesus is a name, the only name, that can threaten your political power base right now. That's why we're here on trial. You killed him, and now you want to stop us as well. But let it also be known that's also the same reason this man stands here healthy. 
The implication here is everybody is watching you. Remember back in the Gospels when the Pharisees said they would really like to arrest Jesus and get rid of him, but if they did it right now, the people would hate them and turn on them. And kind of like, There's a little bit of that going on here. Then Peter says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you and the builders that has become the cornerstone. At this point, he is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22. Now this is what's interesting. This goes back to the term, the rock. And the first time we see the rock up here, I'm going to give you like a little crash course in this one. Moses is standing before the people in the wilderness, and they're all complaining that they don't have anything to drink. And you know Moses thinking like, my goodness, how many times have we been here without water and God has provided for you? How many times have we been here without food and God has provided? How many, many, right? And so it's been multiple years in the wilderness, and he says this. He goes to God, and he always goes to God except for about two times. He goes to God, and God says, do this. Take this staff and walk before the people, and then go to the rock and strike it. This would be scary, because every time that staff has been pulled out, it has always brought a plague of judgment to destroy people. Moses called to pull out that staff. This would be the equivalent of like a bunch of boys trying to like pick up my girl and date her, and I just pull the shotgun out and just kind of walk in front of them and just stare at them. Not that I would ever do that, because I actually want my girls to bring their boyfriends home. So um, that's the worst thing you can do, scare them away, and then they sneak off and be with them. But that's the equivalent. If I did that, that's what they're thinking. Moses, you know how creepy, every time that they've ever done something bad, God has judged them and punished them. And now Moses, the staff has always been reserved for the enemies of God. It's never been used on the people. Moses now pulls out the staff and just walks in front of them. And I know they're thinking, oh, crap. The shotgun was always faced out towards the farm, not towards the house. What's going to happen now? But then he bypasses them and strikes the rock, which means he's never meant it for the people. But he wanted the people to realize what was happening. They should be struck for what they are doing. But he's going to strike the rock instead. Now, the rock, when I was in Sunday school class, we had these little flannel graphs, right? You guys remember those? And I remember being a little kid sitting on my carpet square, looking up, and they threw this picture of Moses up and the picture of a rock. It was this rock about this tall compared to Moses. And then all of a sudden, like, this flap fell down and this little stream of water came out, right? I still remember that, okay? And that was so cool, right? Then you get older and you realize, with 58 to 7,800,000 people and all their animals, that's a very long line for the drinking fountain. And then you realize that the word rock is actually a mountain, a cliff. And when he's striking it, the mountain is bursting open. And a river of life is flowing out of it and going through the entire camp. And then what Moses says is, that's the rock of God. And then in the Psalms, David really begins to develop this and says, God is my rock. He is my refuge from the storm. Little rocks don't protect you from storms. He is the one that I hide myself in. He provides water. He is the one I built myself on. Okay, this is the rock that he's talking about. It's a cliff. It's a mountain. It's the rock that Elijah goes to and the storm comes in and he's protected. And so this becomes used of God throughout the Bible. Then we get to Jesus and Jesus says, there's a wise man who built his house on the rock, a mountain, 
not a nice little slab of concrete, a mountain. And then Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, a lot of people think that's Peter because Peter means Petros, rock. And he's saying on this rock. But that's a near demonstrative, not a remote demonstrative. And you're like, what? English class was a long time ago. A near demonstrative is like this and these when they're close to you. A remote demonstrative is that and those far away. Jesus didn't say on that rock, Peter. He said on this rock. And how do we know that's correct too, other than just grammar? Because when Peter writes First Peter, he's going to use this passage again, and he's going to say Christ is the living rock. And we are all stones being built into him. He didn't say, I am appointed by Jesus. I'm the Pope. (laughs) He said Christ. And then when Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians, he's going to say, and when they came through the baptism, through the Red Sea, that was their baptism. And then they came to the rock, and the rock they struck was Christ. And what came out of the rock? Water. And when they struck Christ on the cross, what came out of him? water and Paul is saying that's the rock and so what Peter's saying right here is he is the rock that the church that the temple that the house the synagogue that Israel has been built on but for those who don't see it they trip over it and they fall into their destruction you can either build on the stone or you can trip over it and be destroyed and that's what Psalms is talking about. And that's exactly where Peter's going to go in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's going to talk about Christ as the living foundation stone, and we're all living stones being built into him, and that we have become, and then he quotes Exodus 19, that we're chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a kingdom of priests, which applied to Israel and Israel alone, which he's saying that we are the new Israel. And then he says, and for the builders, meaning the people who built this, the Jews, it has now become a rock that they stumble over into their destruction. But for us, it is life. And this is exact. I imagine, Peter, this is the beginning of that outline, of that rough draft. And then he takes that and begins to unpack it more in First Peter chapter 2. And this is what he's saying. Are you going to build yourself into what God has used you as a people to build and accept Christ? Or are you going to continually blind yourself to who he is and what has happened and reject the stone and trip over it into your destruction? Your choice. You choose. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. Jesus and John, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, is not the only place that that is stated. Now, all you need is said one time, and it's still true. But it is stated in other places. There is no other name. And this is what he's proclaiming. There is nothing outside of Jesus. He is the gate, and there is only one gate into the tabernacle, one gate into the temple. And Ezekiel's vision, where he saw the temple being rebuilt, he said, and the prince of God will sit in the gate and regulate the flow. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. This is what he's announcing. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and discovered that they were uneducated and ordinary men that were amazed and recognized these men who had been with Jesus. You didn't go to Harvard. 
How are you able to speak like that? That's what they're basically noticing here. They're wowed and amazed by this. And the boldness. This is the contrast between the Peter in the middle of the night at the trial of Jesus who's hiding and cowering in the darkness is freaked out and anxious. And when a little girl says, you're one of them, he's freaking out and he runs away and he abandons the cross. And now they see boldness and confidence and they see education. He's no longer sticking his foot in his mouth anymore. This is what the Holy Spirit did. Remember, it's only been a few months since that night. Less than that. This isn't like Peter's like, wow, I messed up that night. I need to get my act together. I'm going to the library. I'm checking a lot of books out. I'm going to start reading. And I'm going to start listening to self-motivation help tapes to help me gain more confidence. Yes, I'm a beautiful, unique snowflake. And God can do things with me. Okay, repeat that over and over again. He didn't have time to do that. And those resources weren't available either. This is the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. That's it. And because they saw the man who had been healed and standing with them, they had nothing to say against this. It was their confidence in the Spirit. It was the Spirit speaking through them. And it was the work of the Spirit through them in other people's lives that they said, we don't have much of an argument against you. We don't have much of an argument against you. But when they had ordered them to go outside the council, they began to confer with each other, saying, what should we do with these men? Yeah, we can't argue with this. We have no legal basis. We can't really make a moral argument against this, a political argument against this, or ethical argument against this. The people are not going to be okay with our rule against it. But they're threatening our power base. And that's all that matters. So what are we going to do as they convene together outside the ears of everybody else? For it is plain to all who live in Jerusalem that a notable miraculous sign has come about through them. And we cannot deny it. But to keep this matter from spreading any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his, this name. And they called them and, and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, this is very, very enlightening. The Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, yes, they're all Jews, but the common everyday normal people Jews, the political power Jews, Pharisees and Sadducees, all believe that the only true power is the power of God. And that if there are miracles happening in front of your eyes, only God can do that. And now they have said, it is plain to us, without a shadow of a doubt, that a miracle has happened. Which means they're saying it is clear that God has done this. But we can't have it. That shows you their heart. That shows your heart. We're going to order them to stop. We're going to write a new law it says nobody is allowed to proclaim this name, the name that must not be spoken, so to speak. That shows you the true heart of the people who killed Jesus, the power base, the elite, the intelligentia. That's their true. It's all about power. It's all about power. But P 
Peter. And John replied, Whether it is right before God to obey, you rather than God, you decide. So they basically say, is it better to obey people or is it better to obey God? And of course, all of them are going to say, it's better to obey God. And Peter knows. Peter knows what just happens. He knows that they know that this is from God. And he knows that they've just blatantly said, we're commanding God not to work anymore. And so now he's going to put it in their faces so speak and say, is it better to obey God or is it better to obey humans? Because right now you're telling us to obey humans over God. For it is impossible for us to not speak about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop. This is too big. This is too huge. This is too important. This is too in alignment with our mission, the mission of God. And this is God who has commanded us. After threatening them further, they released them, for they could not find how to punish them on the account of the people, because they were all praising God for what had happened. So what they're struggling with is, we would really like to kill them right now, but once again, like with Jesus in the beginning of his ministry, that would get the people to hate us. And all we really care about is power. We don't care about the people. We don't care about actually what the people think about us. All we care about is what the people, how to keep ourselves in power. And that's, only, that's as far as what the people think that we care about. They are all praising God. For the man on whom the miraculous sign of healing had been performed was over 40 years old. This is your template. Daniel chapter 1, 2, and 3. And this is your template for disobedience against the government. And I'm not encouraging you to disobey the government, but how to do it and when to do it. Peter does not say, forget you. We're going to go anarchist and rebel against everything that you're about. He says, we cannot disobey God when men tell us to do something contrary. That's it. We're going to obey God. And most of what you say is in alignment with God. Don't murder, don't lie, don't cheat, don't do this, pay your taxes, all these things. But this one thing, God has commissioned us to preach. This one thing is the mission and the purpose of Israel and of being human, the image of God from the garden. We are not going to stop. But here's the thing. When they say that, they didn't say, forget you, we're going anarchists, we're going to form our own, or not anarchists, but we're going to leave you and we're going to form our own government. And we're going to rebel against you and fight against you. And we're going to overthrow you and start a revolution. They didn't say that. They faced what the government had to give them. When the government arrests them the next time, they're arrested. Yes, the angel will let them out, but eventually when we get to Paul, there will be no more miraculous releases. There will be no more miraculous things. He will be killed, and then Peter will be killed, and then John, and they will all die horrible deaths. And not once did they start a revolution. Not once did they form an alternate government. Not once did they go against it. They just simply did what God told them to do. And when the world didn't like them, they took it. And only when God intervened. But when God didn't, they took it. When Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were with the... They said, we will not bow down to you or this statue. But then they were thrown in their furnace and they took it. This is what's called peaceful protesting. And it was these books that Martin Luther King looked at and was inspired to start the civil rights movement. He did not rebel against the government. He did not try to overthrow it. 
He did not start an alternative thing. He did not bash him. He just silently protested without violence and spoke and said, it is clear in the word of God that all humans, and he rooted into Isaiah and Micah and all these prophets, that all nations have access to the cosmic mountain of God. All nations are equal in the eyes of God. All nations are the image of God. And that idea of treating them differently is contrary to the will of God. But he didn't rebel. He didn't fight. He didn't bash and slander and protest and scream with nasty signs and cancel people on social media. If he had it, he didn't. He just said, here we are. We will not move. We will not stop. And he was arrested. And people were beaten. And people were taken down. And the entire time he encouraged them to take it. Because God is greater than any beating that you can be given. And it was in that beatings and in that suffering that the civil rights movement flourished and thrived. There has never been a movement that has been successful, immediate or even definitely long term, that has been done through violence and hatred and name crawling and bashing and all that kind of stuff. It is when you suffer for good, John says in 1 John, that makes people take notice and see that there's something different. But when you lash out at them and you treat them badly or you rebel and form your own ulterior governments or whatever, then people are like, you're no different than any other political military coup or any other angry radical activists. Why would we follow you? And you're going to fizzle out and die just like them all. And you're going to, in the process, also kick the hornet's nest and get us all stung in the process. But when you're willing to die in peaceful protesting for what is right, then Peter says, then you are heaping burning coals on their heads and you will convict them. And it doesn't mean everybody will turn around, but enough will that it will make it worth it. And this is the model. And so, yes, people are like, yeah, but Peter stood against the government. No, he didn't. He stood with God and said, I will obey him. But that's it. He, the government was able to do whatever he want, they wanted with him. And he took it. And John did too. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and all of them. And sometimes there were miracles that they got escaped. And other times there weren't. But eventually, no matter how many miracles there were, eventually they all died horrible deaths. And yet all those other movements have died and fizzled out. And America, sadly, is also beginning to lose its influence and power and all that kind of stuff. Yet the church is still here, even with all of our messy dysfunctionalness. God is still using the church. And it's still the most powerful, widespread, global, enduring thing that the world has ever said. And even atheists acknowledge that. And they don't like it. In fact, there's a book called, I forget what it's, um, it starts with a D, just one blank. It's written by Tom Holland, not the eye candy Spider-Man Tom Holland. Tom Holland is an atheist who wrote Dominion. But basically, it's a giant book of how Christianity single-handedly, more than any other thing, has changed the world. And everything that we value has everything to do with Christianity. Morality, anti-pedophilia, and uh, women's rights movement, none of that would exist without Christianity. It's a powerful book. Dinesh D'Souza wrote one too, but he's on rocky ground. But what makes this so powerful is he's an atheist who's saying it. And that's powerful. 
And he doesn't mean political power dominion. He just means the reign of Christ. It's a good book. I'm partway through, but everything I've read is great, and I've heard lots of people that I trust and respect um, testify to the goodness of everything else in the book. At this point, they now have a law. That means from this point on, when Peter and John preach, they can now go to prison. Before, they just were held for a trial. Now the trial has declared them not guilty in the moment, because they had no law yet, but now they rewrote the laws, so now we're in the danger zone. We are very, very, very much in the danger zone of what is happening. 